Hi, this is Kenny Duff, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's Sunday, November 5th, and this, you guessed it, this is your Sunday sermon. We're continuing in our new mini-sermon series called What Jesus Wants for You, and it centers on Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Today in part two, we'll be looking at John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19, and we'll talk about the secure and sanctified life. But before we do, join me in an opening word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, Lord, we are grateful to dive into this amazing prayer of yours and find out a little bit more about it, about what you want for us. We're going to be looking at the secure and sanctified life today, Lord, so explain it to us, please, and may we implement whatever you teach us today into our lives for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen and amen. A pastor was invited to dinner at a home at one of his church families. During the meal, he was astonished to hear the younger daughter state that a person must have to be very brave in order to go to church these days. The pastor then asked, why do you say that? She answered, because I heard dad tell mom last Sunday that there was a big shot in the pulpit, the choir murdered the anthem, and the organist drowned everybody. I'm sure that pastor's memories of that meal were memorable, but not in the way you might think. You know, there was a time in the Bible when the disciples had just finished a meal filled with memories, their minds going back to the Passover when God had rescued Israel from bondage. Only this dinner, it was different because Jesus brought new meaning to the bread, saying that it represented his body and to the cup, which symbolized his blood. Shortly after the meal ended, Jesus moved from preaching in John chapters 13 to 16 to prayer in John chapter 17. Last week, we focused on the first part of this powerful prayer, verses 1 through 5. We discovered seven prayer principles as we listened in to Jesus praying for himself. Those principles were, number one, consider changing your prayer posture. Number two, call out to God by name. Number three, align yourself with God's timetable. Number four, go after God's glory. Number five, embrace eternal life. Number six, Rest in his finished work. Number seven, gaze into the glory to come. The main takeaway for me was this one phrase that I've been pondering all week long, and that is this, if you can't do something for God's glory, then you shouldn't be doing it. In our scripture passage for today, verses 6 through 19, we're going to hear why Jesus prays and what Jesus wants his followers to do. One obvious observation is that the length of this section suggests that Jesus had greater concern for his disciples' destiny than for his own. First, let's find out why Jesus prays. Open up your Bible or Bible app to verses 6 through 10, and let's listen to our Lord praying. This is what he said. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I prayed for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, and they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. 
These verses show us five reasons why Jesus prayed for his followers. Let's take a look at them. First, Jesus prays because they know the Father. That's number one, because they know the Father. Let's look at verse 6a, the first part of verse 6. Do you see the word revealed there? The word revealed literally means to render apparent. John chapter 1 verse 18 says this about Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Before Jesus came, it was impossible to know God because of his holiness and our sin, but now he is both accessible and knowable through the sacrifice of his Son. Next, Jesus prays, because they accepted and obey God's word. Take a look at verse 6b through 8a. I love how gracious Jesus is in his description of them. They knew that they had failed many times, but Jesus focuses on their faithfulness. Verse 6b, do you see where it says, they have obeyed your word? And then verse 8a, for I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. That makes me smile a little bit, you know, because the disciples were pretty dull most of the time. And yet Jesus is gracious with how he describes them. He could have pointed out their failures, but instead celebrates their successes, which is a good parenting tip, by the way. By spotlighting their potential, Jesus wanted his disciples looking forward, not back. Third, Jesus prays for his followers because they believed that Jesus was sent by the Father. We see that in the last part of verse 8, again, verse 8b, they knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Though the disciples doubted and wavered and even bailed on Jesus when things got rough, Peter spoke for them in John chapter 6, verse 69, We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. Next, Jesus prayed because they belonged to the Father. Look at verse 6b and verse 9. Jesus thought of his followers as gifts from the Father, and they were the object of Jesus' affection and prayer. Verses 6b and verse 9 read, They were yours. You gave them to me. I prayed for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. And the last thought on why Jesus prayed for his followers is this, because they bring glory to Jesus. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? This phrase at the end of verse 10 says, and glory has come to me through them. It can be translated, I stand glorified in them. In other words, the disciples' lives would reveal Jesus' essential character to those who had not yet believed. So Jesus was present in the world through them. That leads me to ask a question, beloved. Does glory come to Jesus through me? Now that we know the reasons why Jesus prayed, Let's look at the five specific requests he makes for his followers. As I studied for this sermon, I came across a very helpful outline by Pastor Alan Carr. I'm going to adapt a portion of it here so we can see clearly what it is that Jesus wants for you and me. I'm so grateful also that I came across a book called When God Prays by Skip Heitzig. The first request that Jesus makes of his followers is this. He wants you to be secured. Notice that the word protect is used twice. And then we see the phrase kept them safe. Here's the verses 11 and 12. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, 
I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. Jesus has kept his followers safe and secure, and now he's returning to his glory in heaven, and he is handing them back to the Father for safekeeping. Jesus knew that with his departure that Satan would shift his sinister schemes to the disciples. God's name represents his nature, and so Jesus knows with confidence they're going to be protected. This word means to be on guard and was used to describe a mother hen protecting her chicks. I love 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. It says, But I am not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. Take a look at verse 11 of our text, John 17, verse 11. Let's see how Jesus addresses his request. He says, Holy Father, do you see that? This captures both God's transcendence and his tenderness. It balances the idea of ultimate purity with intimate paternity. He is mighty and majestic, but he's also my dad. I must have a proper sense of fear, and yet he's dear to me. I commend this model to you because this title reminds us both to be reverent and still confident in our requests. Notice at the end of verse 11, the heart of Jesus is for harmony among his followers. It says, so that they may be one as we are one. The unity in the Trinity is the model for unity between brothers and sisters. We're designed to function as a community of unity, not in isolation or aggravation with each other. We'll talk more about that next week. The phrase in verse 12 shows us that Judas was not secure because he had never believed or received. It says, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. The scripture he's referring to here is likely Psalm 41 verse 9, which says, even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food has turned against me. The second request Jesus makes of his followers is he wants you to be satisfied. Because we're secure in our salvation, we can and should experience satisfaction. Check out verse 13. It says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they might have the full measure of my joy within them. It's interesting that Jesus is not talking about us having happiness or experiencing just a little bit of joy once in a while, but instead desires that we have the full measure of his joy. Wow, that's incredible. That's difficult, though, to comprehend, isn't it? It's the idea of being completely full and was used in the world of fishing to cram a net full. Jesus wants us to be crammed full of joy. Before we think that we just have to plaster a smile on our face all day, Jesus defines what it is that brings him delight in John chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you would be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Remember, we don't have to manufacture joy on our own. Our job is to abide in Christ and to allow the full measure of his joy to flow through us. Pastor John Piper once said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He adds, if your aim is to glorify God, you will do it most by being satisfied in him. If you were with us last week, you were given, if you were live with us in New Braunfels, you were given a sheet of paper titled The Names of God. If you listened or watched the video on this media channel, 
then you saw in the description the same list of names below the actual description of the video. It was designed to help you with your prayer life. Today I want to give you another tool that I think is going to be very practical and will help your prayer life as well. For those of you who are listening or watching on this media platform, this will be included right below the description of the video. Now, just as Jesus wants us to experience the full measure of his joy, we're also to exhibit some additional fruit in our lives. We find this in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, which says, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here's what I want you to do. I'd like you to spend some time praying right now. First, go through the fruit of the Spirit one by one and ask God to grow each individual fruit in your life. For instance, you could pray, God, I want to be more loving. Please grow this in my life. I'm also in need of joy because I'm so crabby most of the time. And you kind of get the idea from there. Now, when you're finished praying for this for yourself, then I want you to pray this for your spouse, for your children, maybe even for your parents. Now, when you're finished with this time of silent prayer, I'm going to pray this passage for each and every one of us. You can pause the video right now and continue to pray and then come back and I'll be here with this prayer for you. Welcome back, my friends. I hope this was a fruitful time of prayer for you, praying for the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I would be honored to be able to pray this passage for you. Dear Father, grower of spiritual fruit, let the fruit of your Spirit blossom, mature, and ripen in the lives of the people of this church and the people that have joined us today via this media platform. Lord, I pray that they would blossom and mature and ripen with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these, it says. Let them possess them, Lord. Since we belong to Christ, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let us live by the Spirit. Let us walk by the Spirit. Let us show no self-conceit, give no provocation, have no envy toward anyone else. Let us live in, through, and for Jesus Christ as he lives in, through, and for us and his church. In the name of Jesus, I ask you to perfect us, whatever that may take, and give us the grace to endure for your renovation process. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. God wants us to know that we're secure and he wants us to experience satisfaction through our relationship with him. The third request Jesus makes of his followers is this. He wants you to be separated. That should be familiar from our Nehemiah series when we learned about how God wanted the people of Israel to separate from other peoples from other lands. Look at verses 14 to 16. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Jesus doesn't want to take them out of the world, which is a descriptive phrase that means to sail away. Instead, he's committed to protect us from the wiles of the evil one. We are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Dr. D.A. Carson reminds us that this prayer of Jesus teaches what we should pray for. He says, the spiritual dimensions of this prayer are consistent and overwhelming. By contrast, we spend much more time today praying about our health, our projects, our decisions, our finances, our family, even our games than we do praying about the danger of the evil one. 
materialists at heart, we often discern only very, very dimly the spiritual struggle. Certainly the church will not produce many spiritual giants when it fails to discern its chief enemy. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that Satan is the god of this age, and 1 John 5.19 adds that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. 1 John 2.16 declares that the things of the world are diametrically opposed to God. It says, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The word world occurs 40 times in chapters 13 to 17, and in this chapter alone, it's used 18 times, and it refers to the ethical and moral system that stands in rebellion to God. Unfortunately, many Christians try to get as close to the world as they can. This is dangerous, as James 4.4 4 states, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Skip Heitzig is right in his book when he observes, The most miserable Christians I know are the worldly ones. They're like fish trapped in a net, still alive but bound up, immobilized and unproductive, and headed for destruction if they don't break free. Friends, if we don't get serious about living separated lives, the church in America is in trouble. Dare I say, it is already in trouble. If we don't focus on fortifying our families, they will continue to crumble. The fourth request Jesus makes of his followers is he wants you to be sanctified. Now look at verses 17 and 19. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. If there's ever been a churchy sounding word, sanctify would be it. Let me see if I can unpack it for us. To be sanctified means to be set apart or dedicated, and it speaks of allegiance and consecration for the purpose of sacrifice. In this sense, Jesus is set apart as a priest, preparing to offer up a sacrifice, which is his own body, as stated in Hebrews 10.10, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In other words, through the sacrifice of his body, we are sanctified. Sanctification happens through the word. The only way to live separate is to constantly immerse yourself in the scriptures. Reading and studying the Bible is not optional. As someone has once said, sin will keep you from this book, and this book will keep you from sin. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Beloved, Jesus' heart is to set us apart. And lastly, the fifth request Jesus makes of his followers is this. He wants us to saturate the world. Listen carefully. We are to be sanctified by the word so that we can saturate the world. Sanctification in John's gospel is always for a mission, and the success of that mission is impossible without sanctification. Listen to verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. How was Jesus sent into the world? He was sent with love. He was sent incarnationally. He was also missional, meaning he was always on mission. During the reign of Oliver Cromwell, the British government ran out of silver to make coins. Cromwell responded to the need by sending his men across the nation to see if they could uncover more of the precious metal. They returned shortly without much to speak of, reporting that the only silver they could find was in the statues of the saints that were on display in the multitude of cathedrals around England. 
good, replied Cromwell. Then we will melt down the saints and put them back into circulation, he said. Friends, we are not meant to be cloistered in cathedrals, but instead to be out in circulation so that we can saturate the world with the word of God. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13, that we're the salt of the earth. We can't do much good if we just stay inside the salt shaker. Back in November of 2012, when Word of Hope Christian Church was forming, our vision was cast. It begins with two scriptures. Romans 15, 4 says, And the scriptures were written to teach and encourage us by giving us hope. Psalm 119, verse 114 says, Your word is my source of hope. And that's what we believe. The hope we have in the word of God is founded on a relationship with and security in God himself. We are the body of Christ called to be Jesus in every neighborhood in our city and beyond. Now, within this vision, there are two key aspects. The first is what is called missional. We've got to instill in our people, starting with us, that we are ambassadors of Christ. As such, we should approach everything we do as agents of God's mission in every neighborhood, our city, and beyond. I recently came across a definition I really like and want to share it with you. It says, every disciple is to be an agent of the kingdom of God, and every disciple is to carry the mission of God into every sphere of life. For example, a factory worker is really a missionary disguised as a factory worker. A teacher is a missionary disguised as a teacher. A farmer is a missionary disguised as a farmer. We could call that go-and-tell evangelism. The second part of our vision is what I would call attractional. In other words, our Sunday service, our midweek Bible study, any other programs we have should be attractive to unbelievers and evangelize the lost. We don't want to shove it down anyone's throat, but we don't want to soft sell the gospel either. We could call this a come and see kind of evangelism. I don't see this as an either or type thing, but rather as a both moment. Check out Acts chapter 5 verse 42. It reads, and every day in the temple, this is the attractional, and from house to house, this is the missional. They continued to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. To say it another way, we must equip our people and design our programs in such a way that we end up connecting people to Jesus, both in this community and beyond. Related to this, whether emphasizing a missional or an attractional approach, we must make sure that our congregation is connected to the needs of our community and to the needs of the world. In addition, as we put family first, we've got to train our people and design our ministries to specifically assist families in the community. And let me just say as a side note, we are a work in progress at Word of Hope about this. We have not arrived in any way, shape, or form regarding these, but that's our goal, to keep the mission forward, to keep the vision strong, because we believe it came from the Lord. And I hope for you, your families, and your churches, you are doing the same thing. Let me see if I can tie all of this together. In a nutshell, here's the message for today. Because we're secure, we can be satisfied with Christ, which should lead us to live a separated life, sanctified for his purposes so that we can saturate this world with his word. Jesus is praying for you because there's a spiritual war raging all around. When you declare your allegiance to him, you can no longer remain neutral. So how then are we going to respond? Maybe you'll respond by being isolated. At times in church history, the pull of the world was so strong that believers retreated to monasteries and others did even more unusual things. Anthony, the founder of Christian monasticism, never changed his vest or washed his feet. 
He was outdone, however, by Simeon Stylites, who spent the last 37 years of his life on top of a 50-foot pillar. Another guy named Anatoly from France didn't want to go to that extreme, so he donned a simple garment and sat in a chair atop his kitchen table. Everything went well until his family returned home. They thought he had lost his mind and told him so. They made life miserable for him, so he quit his vigil. Reflecting on his attempted isolation, he remarked, I soon perceived that it was very difficult to be a saint while living in your own family. Some people, however, are going to insulate. It's pretty tough to isolate, so some people choose to insulate themselves from the problems and pain of those who don't yet know Christ. These people spend almost all their time with other Christians, and when they do have conversations about lost people, their words are filled with judgmentalism. As one man said, we have to stop thinking us versus them and move toward us for them. Or will you respond by imitation? I'm afraid this is where the majority of believers end up. Instead of fighting the world, this person just wants to fit in. And lastly, will you respond with infiltration? This is the heart of Jesus. He wants us to be secured, satisfied, separated, and sanctified so that we can saturate the world with the word of God. Beloved, what's it going to be? How will you respond to Jesus Christ today? As the words of the beautiful hymn say, the Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let him come in today? And all God's people said, amen and amen. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.